welcome to Chiropractic Science, where you get to hear interviews with leading chiropractic researchers from around the world. My name is Dr. Dean Smith, and I am the host of Chiropractic Science. I am a clinical professor in the Department of Kinesiology, Nutrition, and Health at Miami University, and I'm also a chiropractor in Eaton, Ohio. My research interests relate to understanding how chiropractic affects motor control and human performance. Today, I have the privilege of interviewing Dr. Clinton Daniels. But before we get to the interview, I wanted to thank all of you who have subscribed to Chiropractic Science, and I'm especially appreciative to all of you who have contributed five-star reviews on iTunes. iTunes reviews really helps others find out about chiropractic science. So if you like the show, please take a second and write a review. It will support chiropractors everywhere. Please consider making a contribution to chiropractic science to keep these podcasts going. You can do so on our website by making a donation. All right, on to the podcast. Well, let's get on to the interview with Dr. Clinton Daniels. Dr. Clint Daniels is chiropractic section chief at VA Puget Sound Healthcare System in Tacoma, Washington, where he serves a team of nine chiropractors and is a resident director. He serves on the VA Chiropractic Field Advisory Committee as the research coordinator, is a scientific commission board member for Clinical Compass, and is appointed to the Washington State Health Technology Clinical Committee. He is a 2010 chiropractic graduate from Logan University, where he also received his Master of Science in Sports Science and Rehabilitation. He worked in private practice for four years and then joined VA and was the first graduate of the St. Louis VA Chiropractic Integrated Clinical Practice Residency Program. He has authored and contributed to numerous scientific publications on the topics of chiropractic integration into veteran and military facilities, post-surgical spine pain, suicide prevention, chiropractic best practices, and numerous case reports on a variety of clinical presentations. Dr. Daniels, thank you uh, so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Dean. Uh, I, I'm a longtime listener of, of uh, chiropractic science, and uh, you know, first-time caller here. And it's uh, it's really an honor to be to be asked to be uh, part of this interview. You've had so many great, uh, you know, researchers and and chiropractic thought leaders on. I'm I'm very humbled to be part of the conversation. Well, I would say likewise, and uh, I I just appreciate you coming on the podcast, and uh, you're doing great stuff. So. We're going to learn about all of the cool stuff, or at least not all of it, but uh, some of it. Uh, <laughs> we've got, a, we've got a, a lot of stuff to get through, actually. There's some really important papers to talk about. So, But as you know, I always like to ask uh, my guests how they became interested in becoming a chiropractor in the first place. Yeah, yeah. Happy to talk about that. Um, I think my... Uh, chiropractic origin story is probably similar to a, a lot of people in our profession with with sort of a, a personal experience. Uh, I was a high school athlete. I was a wrestler and uh, injured my neck in a practice and uh, it was interfering with my ability to compete. And my parents took me to the, the family physician and he evaluated me and said, you know, basically, you know, there's nothing wrong with you. And, uh, you know, he was right. You know, I didn't have a fracture. I didn't have you know, acute indication for imaging or medication, anything like that. Um, however, I kept having pain and and still couldn't compete. And uh, my dad at, at the time was a, a union carpenter and uh, he's retired now. And he had been using chiropractors for, for years 
just to stay on the job for, for his labor-intensive uh, work. And he set me up with the chiropractor he was seeing. And I, I think I saw him two, maybe three times and uh, was fixed. Um, so if you're ever in Lafayette, Indiana, Indiana, look up Doug Williams. He does does great work. And uh, so I, w- I had already kind of been considering healthcare as uh, as a profession or a major in college. And um, so I, I kind of continued with that, with the idea of going to chiropractic school afterwards. Um, and I was very fortunate. I, I studied health sciences. And the school I went to actually had a concentration in pre-chiropractic, um, which was basically the exact same as the pre-med program. But they just swapped out uh, pharmacology and toxicology for biomechanics and exercise phys. And uh, once I finished that program and graduated, I uh, started at Logan just a, a couple months later uh, in Chesterfield, Missouri. That's great. Well, maybe you could tell us just a little bit about your chiropractic uh, education. And then um, I'm also interested in learning about uh, your private practice. I, I know you're out in private practice before you got to the VA. So maybe just uh, tell us about that transition a little bit, and then we'll and then we'll certainly get into the research. Yeah, so I... Uh, once I graduated from Logan, I, I graduated in 2010, as you, you said earlier. Uh, I stayed in St. Louis for for a few years in the St. Louis area. Um, I worked as an associate for a couple years, and then opened my own practice, which I ran uh, for about two years as well. And uh, during that time, through conversations with one of my research mentors, uh, Dennis Enix, who was a professor at Logan, um, he told me about this new VA residency program and uh, highly encouraged me to apply to that program. And of course, I, I ultimately did and was, uh, was offered a spot. And at that point, I had to weigh, uh, you know, do I close my practice that I've, I've spent a couple years building uh, to take a pretty good pay cut um, for a one-year position that didn't have any guarantees of a job afterwards? And um, I ended up taking the leap, and it's the best uh, best decision I've made, uh, you know, career-wise. Um, it, it's just been a, a fantastic experience in the VA. The, the program itself was great, the residency, um, and then uh, in, into my staff position afterwards. Uh, VA has a strong culture of train and retain, and so uh, I was able to get a few interviews and, and ultimately land at VA Puget Sound, uh, where I wanted to be. Awesome. So yeah, I know Dennis. Dennis is great. Uh, so you you got interested uh, in research, it sounds like, even before you got to the VA. Uh, but I'm assuming once you got to the VA, uh, you you got into some, some of the studies that you've been a part of. Uh, h- how did that go? Uh, what exactly happened to, to get you motivated to do research? Sure. Yeah. My, so my research path really uh, I'd say started in undergrad. Um, the school I went to was a big research institution. Um, I had a lot of lab classes and and was fairly comfortable with with sort of uh, you know the scientific process or research methodology in sort of a generalized sense. Um, I got exposed to PubMed and and other databases in undergrad and was was you know decently adept at those uh, yeah utilizing those databases before starting Cairo School. Um, in uh, my Cairo program, I. Ch- tried to continue to develop my, my interest in, in research and, uh, or I'm sorry, skills in, in research through, you know, attending journal clubs and reading articles. Um, I actually wrote my first case report as a student and uh, published that, you know, very shortly after graduation. Um, and then in those, those few, you know, four years or so of private practice, um, I really worked, focused on 
uh, trying to identify mentors and peers uh, that I could work with. Uh, and I was really fortunate that that Cheryl Hawk actually came to Logan to, to work for a couple years uh, in that time frame. And I reached out to her and set up a meeting and she and I hit it off right away. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, that relationship really led to a lot of uh, opportunities and, and open doors for me to, to kind of progress to the next level of my, my understanding. Um, so I, you know, I was able to do some peer review work and uh, I served on the editorial board for a journal that uh, she was running at the time and, and also had some opportunities to collaborate uh, with her on projects. And then when I started at VA uh, as a resident, residents have the, the great uh, opportunity to have some dedicated time for scholarly activities. So, you know, they can work on research projects, presentations. Uh, we have national projects that the residents do as well. And I really tried to maximize uh, the use of that time. So during, during my residency, I, I published a case report, uh, a narrative review, and then I was also able to collaborate on a project that was led by uh, Bart Green and, and Claire Johnson. And uh, that, you know, working with them and with, with Cheryl on projects was uh, really uh, instrumental in, in molding my approach to projects and, uh, you know, how I looked at you know, not just like how evidence synthesis work is done, but uh, how to lead a project and, and be successful and, and see these through to the end. Um, and then once I moved into my staff position, I had, uh, you know, I no longer had any protected time, uh, but I had a little more freedom to kind of do whatever I wanted uh, research-wise as long as it, you know, met the requirements of our, our facility. Um, and uh, I became the for the field advisory committee, which is uh, sort of uh, the the chiropractic field nationally uh, of you know, all the chiropractors that work in the VA representation to central office, which is uh, like Dr. Lisi and, and his team. And uh, I in 2018, I took this role as research coordinator, where I, I then had to start running our journal club calls and, and trying to foster a, a culture of uh, research and evidence. And uh, then shortly after I got the the residency program uh, was uh, we had applied to a proposal and or were awarded one of the spots. And we've really tried to continue uh, challenging our residents to do a number of projects. Uh, one of which I think we're going to talk about here shortly. That's great. And you know, I I just want to iterate reiterate uh, something that you said uh, that I think is really important, especially for any chiropractor that is looking to get into research. And that is just the simplest thing. You know, just you reached out to Dr. Hawk and said, hey, uh, I'd like to you know, meet with you. I mean, that's how it starts, right? And uh, I mean, you, you, had some great, uh, you had some great mentors um, along the way. So that's, that's fantastic. Um, now, you mentioned some of the things that you're, you're doing uh, with the VA. Uh, so I'm just curious, like, what would a day in the life of Clint uh, Daniels look like? Yeah, I. Um, so at, at VA Puget Sound, we are on uh, 410 schedules. So I technically work Monday through Thursday um, from, you know, 7 to 530. And uh, I am clinical Monday through Wednesday. So three days a week, other than, you know, I'll occasionally have a block time where I have to attend a, a man supervisor meeting or, or things like that. Um, and then Thursdays, I am fully administrative. Um, so 
you know, that administrative time is for d- doing all my supervisory duties and also for running uh, our resident program, and uh, which is quite involved. Uh, we are uh, CCE accredited, uh, which is something that's really unique about VA chiropractic residencies. Uh, we are currently the only accredited residency programs uh, for the profession. Uh, there is a program uh, in a, a hospital in Wisconsin, Advocate Aurora, that is also pursuing this as well, which is uh, another great spot. Um, and so, you know, a lot of my time is is devoted directly to running that program. Um, I, I don't do any teaching other than in the clinic. Uh, you know, I'm not in a classroom setting or anything like that. I also don't have any dedicated research time. Um, I can use a little bit of my Thursdays to work on projects that are directly related to things my residents are doing. Um, but otherwise, uh, all my research work is, you know, nights, weekends, uh, you know, between patients, uh, you know, as much as I can without my wife getting upset. Yeah, I understand that. You, I mean, you do it because you love it, right? I mean, that's exactly. uh, why a lot of yeah, us do this. Yeah, that that that's great. And uh, yeah, it takes a team for sure. You know, uh, I couldn't imagine if my family wasn't supportive that way. But, uh, you know, it, it's just, uh, it takes a lot of commitment. But yeah, absolutely. You just do it because we love doing it and you don't have to do it. But, uh, I mean, look at, we're going to be talking about some of these great projects. So that's the next thing I wanted to say is that, you know, as I was looking through your research uh, projects that you've done over the years, there's, there's a lot there. Uh, I mean, I was trying to come up with questions. Uh, I was looking at some of these papers in advance of our discussion today, and there's just a ton. So um, I think we should just dive into some of these papers, and I'll probably have some questions along the way. Uh, but I, I want to preserve our time to actually get into the, the nitty-gritty of some of these uh, projects you've been involved with. And the first one um, that I'd like to talk about is uh, from a paper called The Effectiveness of Manipulative and Manual Therapies in the Management uh, for patients with prior lumbar surgery. Uh, this is such a, a a neat topic. I mean, with you know, what chiropractor doesn't see patients who have had prior surgery? That's the question. Uh, I I think the real question maybe is how many? Like, what percentage do we even know? Uh, and then how do we? How do we take care of people who have had surgeries? Such a great topic. Um, so I'm glad uh, you're a part of that. And I'm really excited to hear uh, what what you were able to come up with in this paper. So maybe you can just walk us through that. Sure. Uh, you know, so as, as it says in the title, this was a, a systematic review uh, where we had a couple aims. Uh, the, the primary aim was to look at effectiveness of manipulation and manual therapy on, on pain and function. For, for people who had had prior uh, lumbar surgeries. Um, and then we also looked secondarily at uh, adverse reactions and uh, medication utilization. And so we included uh, most all uh, types of surgeries with the exception of uh, people who had surgery for scoliosis. We considered that to be a different of enough condition um, and did not include that. Um, so what we did include was you know discectomies, laminectomies, fusions, disc replacements, uh, spinal cord stimulators. Uh, we also included all 
manual therapies that we could find. So, you know, spinal manipulation with, you know, HVLA, flexion distraction, you know, instrument type techniques, drop table, stretching, massage, you know, PIR, PNF, occupational manipulation, or, or not occupational, osteopathic manipulative therapy. Um, and then we graded the evidence of uh, the RCTs that we included um, and also the systematic reviews. And those are what we use to to form our our. Uh, you know, comments on effectiveness um, for the adverse reactions and medi- uh, medication utilization. We also included lower level designs. So, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, things like cohorts, case reports, uh, case series, things like that. Um, and then in the paper, we broke all of this down by uh, surgical type. So, you know, if a patient's had a fusion, uh, you know, what's the evidence say on, on manual therapy for that? And, uh, you know, we also included the lower level studies to give more context because we were anticipating we wouldn't find uh, many higher level studies, you know, many of those, those RC, RCT type designs. And uh, we were glad we did because that's, that was pretty much true. Um, I think we only identified four adequately powered RCTs and uh, several of those were quite old and uh, they were all very different, very heterogeneous. So, you know, different timelines of care, different treatment approaches, different, uh, you know, populations, you know, different, you know, like they had prior surgeries were different or maybe a combination or maybe they didn't, didn't differentiate them uh, at all. So it was uh, really not possible to put them together for any kind of meta-analysis. And, you know, so when we were all uh, said and done, basically most of the the surgical types, we, we really couldn't say, uh, you know, whether or not to recommend or discourage uh, manipulation or manual therapy in general uh, for each of those. So, uh, you know, really, I think this was uh, basically just meant to be sort of the first uh, systematic review work on this to to identify gaps, and hopefully, uh, you know, future designs will look at this uh, deeper. Yeah, for sure. And like you say, you know, this uh, first attempt, but a really important uh, topic, and again, something that you know, chiropractors see, you know, these patients who have had different kinds of surgeries, I'm presuming on a, on a daily basis and, and multiple a day, probably that have had various kinds of surgeries. Um, so I, I think you made a, a great point in the discussion. I, I'm just going to share it with everyone because, uh, I think it hit the nail on the head. So, in the discussion, you say this growing subpopulation of low back pain sufferers, that is, people who have had surgery already, uh, and thus the interested clinician is forced to rely heavily on case reports and series for literature guidance. This, to me, strikes me as, you know, one of these evidence-based practice dilemmas, right? We have uh, three legs to the stool. We've got the clinician's experience and uh you know, thoughts, uh, expertise, uh, we've got what the patient is valuing. And then we have to consider, of course, what's in the literature. But in this case, there's not a whole lot to go on. Um, and your paper now is the, the highest level, uh, with this review. So it's, uh, it's something that, uh, we all encounter, uh, throughout our practice careers and, you have to make some sort of decision, right? I mean, these people are coming to us. They're, they have pain still. They've probably tried many other things other than surgery, I would uh, guess, injections and medications and, and whatnot, massage. And 
uh, so many things that people try. And so it really comes down to, uh, from a chiropractic standpoint, you know, what is it can we do and what kind of guidance can we rely on? I am curious, uh, do we have any idea uh, of what percentage of patients that chiropractors see who have had prior surgery? Yes, actually. So um, until very recently, I would have said no. Um, You know, we just didn't have any data. Um, I had done a survey a few years ago uh, where we surveyed VA docs on just fusion and what they do with them, how often they see it. And we, we know Cairo's report seeing these patients, uh, you know, as, as you said, you're seeing them too. And I, I think in our uh, survey, about 90% of the, the respondents had said they'd seen a, a post-fusion patient within the last month. Um, but that's, you know, obviously subject to recall bias and is not, you know, uh, good data on, on like how often we're really seeing them. Um, uh, but just this week I came across uh, a paper that was just published in curious, which is C U R U S, um, by friend of the podcast, Rob Traeger. And in, in this study, they looked at the Trinet X or Trinetics. I'm not sure how you say it database, um, which includes, you know, 110 million patients. And, uh, these are all patients seen in academic centers. And of those, they identified 80,000 that were receiving chiropractic spinal manipulation. I believe they use uh, CPT codes for that. And of those, like 10 to 11% had prior surgeries also coded. Um, So that's, to my knowledge, that's the first uh, study that has presented uh, data on on how frequently we're seeing these patients. So, you know, one in 10 uh, essentially has a a prior surgery, at least in academic centers. So, you know, that might not be perfectly generalizable to private practice because obviously most chiropractors are not working in academic centers, uh, at least in the U.S. So uh, I I was pretty excited to read that paper. uh, Yeah, yeah. Shout out to Rob Traeger. Great job on that. And uh, yeah, for sure. And, you know, I think that... um, that the discussion uh, needs to continue a little bit further with uh, with this paper, just diving into some of the details. At least I'm just going to shout out a few things that I thought were really quite interesting. So one of the things you mentioned in the paper was that, uh, you know, patients who have had prior surgery who see a chiropractor uh, would typically have, you know, some mild soreness. Uh, but there were no serious adverse events that were reported in the uh, case series or, you know, any of the studies uh, that you had come across. And I guess, you know, that did strike me as kind of interesting, right? Because these people have had already invasive, you know, surgeries, uh, presumably. And so it kind of made me think, well, I wonder if they might be predisposed to, to having a little bit more, you know, of a significant pain or, or issue, but, uh, apparently not. So that was nice to see. I don't know if you have any comment on that, but, uh, that, that just struck me as, wow, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, we were, uh, a little bit surprised and very happy to, to see that, uh, you know, none of the RCTs, none of the case reports, nothing had any serious adverse events, uh, reported. Um, you know, maybe that's publication bias too. And just people didn't write up the, the adverse events, um, but you know, I feel like usually there's no shortage of, of, you know, ER physicians and other physicians willing to write up, uh, any adverse event that can be linked to, to chiropractic. So, uh, or, or to spinal manipulation in general. So we were, we were really, uh, happy to see that finding. For sure. Now, one of the things that patients, uh, either, you know, 
potential patients or, or patients in my own practice ask me about is uh, whether they can receive chiropractic care after lumbar spine surgery. And, you know, it's a, it, it's an interesting thing, like, you know, the patients say, well, should I ask my, should I ask my medical doctor? Or, or can you tell me, you know, this sort of thing. And uh, it, it's always an interesting thing when, when I hear people ask that uh, question. So I'm curious what, uh, what you, you know, what your thoughts are on that. Is there any kind of general advice or does it all just come down to just, you know, the individual um, what they present with. That's usually how I kind of approach it, but maybe there are some sort of general uh, pieces of advice. Sure. Yeah. I, I think this is a, a, a really good question and uh, something I see debated a lot when I, I you know, talk to colleagues. And uh, even when we've done uh, like the survey project that I was part of, and um, I was part of another project with Rob Traeger where we looked at uh, individual patient data just in all the cases. And, uh, you know, there's lots of different approaches people are taking with uh, people who have had surgeries, you know, whether they are or not comfortable with doing HVLA or they'll stick to just flexion distraction or, or other approaches. And uh, I really take a very patient-centered approach. I, th- I think you hit the, you know, uh, hammer on the nail there. Um, and it really depends on their presentation. So I think for somebody who's had a surgery that, um, has had adequate time to heal. Uh, you know, I usually like to see them if I'm considering, you know, spinal manipulation with, with HVLA, I'm, I'm wanting to see them, you know, nine to 12 months after the procedure, just to make sure things are as healed as, uh, you know, much as we can and not putting undue, uh, risk to the area. Um, and that, that nine month month number, uh, is, that's basically the earliest you'll start to see, uh, you know, signs after a fusion signs of calcification, uh, on an x-ray. So that's sort of where that comes from. Um, I've had some conversations with neurosurgeons where they think that's actually too, uh, you know, maybe too conservative and, and could do more like, you know, six months, uh, without too much risk. Um, I think it matters a lot though, you know, what the patient's comfortable with. Um, you know, I've definitely had people who've had maybe a, a cervical fusion who've said, you know, I don't want you to mess with it. And we say, okay, no problem. You know, we'll work on other areas. Um, I, think generally, I also, you know, for a lumbar case, I want to see some flexion extension films after a surgery to make sure the area is stable. And then, uh, you know, it depends on on the symptoms. So, you know, if they have a bunch of neuro findings, I'm going to be way more conservative versus if they just have, you know, mechanical back pain, but also happen to have had a prior surgery. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. Those are, those are great pieces of advice. Um, now, just curious, the the six month and the nine month that you were talking about, uh, waiting after surgery, uh, I'm assuming that would be for a high velocity, uh, type of manipulation. How about like soft tissue type of work? Yes. You're, you're, you're spot on there. Um, for soft tissue work, I'd probably wait six weeks or so just for, you know, normal tissue healing, um, and, and make sure they're kind of through that window of, of, you know, high infection risk. Um, I have, I did see a, a case report that was published recently on, uh, I think it was last year on cervical disc replacement where, uh, you know, they manipulated in the area pretty quickly, like within a month after the procedure. Um, and the patient had a good outcome. And, and I've seen, 
you know, some discussions and arguments where, you know, for disk replacement, maybe we should be involved in, in mobilizing and doing things earlier, uh, where it's going to be a different approach for like a fusion where you want stability. Um, and those, those I would be uh, less inclined to get too aggressive with. Um, I also think you could do like core strengthening uh, pretty early with, with a lot of these cases um, or manipulate other areas. So, you know, I don't see why you couldn't do, you know, if they're having other pain complaints, I don't see why you couldn't do manipulation of the thoracic spine or, or cervical spine after they had a lumbar procedure. Um, I don't think that's going to put them at too much undue risk either. Sure. Yeah. And I guess the mechanical person inside of me says, yeah, you know, those may have an effect on the more distant segments anyway. So uh, may not be a bad thing just to to check the, the whole spine. Uh, <laughs> there's more than just the lumbar spine or the cervical spine. I mean, there's more segments. So, you know, they could certainly benefit uh, perhaps from from care elsewhere. And uh, that brings me to a, another question that I had. Um, you know, there's there's a debate, I think, within, within our profession as to, you know, do – uh, one, can we, do we actually adjust the segment that we think we are? I guess that, but that's not the real question I wanted to get to. The question I guess might be more like in this context of surgery, uh, should we be, you know, manipulating a segment, let's say that has fusion, uh, or two segments away, three segments away. I mean, is there any, was there any discussion of that in the papers that you read? Uh, Essentially, no. Um, I can't. I have not found any literature to say like we shouldn't do, um, based on you know evidence and not just opinions. Anyways, that say we shouldn't do manipulation to an area of fusion. Um, I, I think some of the confusion around this uh, comes from. Uh, I know this was my stance, anyways, coming out of chiro school, thinking that the hardware and all the the you know, nice stuff that looks up beautiful on an x-ray was the fusion. And that's actually not correct. The, the fusion is the sort of the healing of graft material in the disc space. Um, that's usually in some, some sort of cage. And once that heals, that's one bone. Um, so the idea that you're going to break apart a fusion that, that properly fused, I, I think is, uh, you know, very unlikely. Um, so I, I personally think, it's reasonable if the patient can tolerate it and, you know, you preload the area to do manipulation, you know, including hands at the site of, uh, you know, where the fusion was, because you're going to move the joints above and below it anyways, uh, to kind of get at your first question, you know, we're not moving a single joint. We're usually moving whole segments. Um, so I, I don't have any issues with, with doing manipulation to the area of a fusion. If, you know, patient centered, if the patient can tolerate and, and wants the treatment. Um, I, I am aware of, uh, uh, out of a group out of Rand UCLA uh, released an expert panel paper uh, a couple years ago. And in that they looked at clinical scenarios where spinal manipulation uh, was not appropriate or, or where it was appropriate for chronic low back pain. And one of the things that came up uh, consistently in that was laminectomy as potentially uh, not appropriate for spinal manipulation. And I think they're probably thinking, you know, total laminectomy where you're moving uh, a large amount of bone and, and changing the biomechanics um, however, uh, it's not really clear where, where they came to that conclusion from. I, I haven't seen any studies that uh, specifically call out laminectomy. And uh, we had we, in our systematic review, we found a lot of case reports and, and other, uh, I think there were more case reports actually on laminectomy than any other uh, surgical type. 
and you know it, it was same no no adverse reactions or anything so at this point i i don't think we have any evidence in the literature that says uh you know we shouldn't do manipulation yeah well great answer uh very similar to how i approach patients with prior surgery and you know the way i kind of think of it is similar to you and i would extend it and just say you know what's the difference if uh if somebody's had you know osteoarthritis at a particular segment and it's fused naturally so to speak for a number of years i mean it it's fused and so you know i uh and i haven't heard too many people uh suggest don't manipulate or don't try to do anything around those segments at all i've never heard that so uh, yeah, I think, I think a good analogy is like if you break your arm and you cast it and it heals back, it's now one bone. Like you're not like putting some stress to that area isn't going to re-break it um, <laughs> unless you yeah. put a huge amount of stress in, right? Uh, which we're not doing anyways. Exactly, exactly. Well, I'm enjoying this discussion so far, so this is good. Excellent. Thank you. Um, okay, let's uh, go to our next paper here, and this is. Uh, to be honest, this is not something I think about a whole lot, but it is very—it's uh, a very important topic. And uh, this is from the Journal of the Canadian Chiropractic Association: The Chiropractor's Role in Primary, Secondary, and Tertiary Prevention of Suicide: A Clinical Guide. So, um, yeah, I wonder if you could guide us through that. There, there was a lot of practical stuff in the article, uh, which I really appreciated. A lot of websites. Um, and so f- just putting a plug out there for, uh, for chiropractors in practice, if, if you need to look up any of this information or you want websites to, to help your patients, uh, check this out. The JCCA article is uh, free full text. So just wanted to say that in advance, but, uh, Clint, take it away. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Dean. I, I appreciate you saying that because that, that was really the intent of this paper was we wanted clinicians to be able to just, you know, print it off and, and have it in their office. And, you know, if, if they need to run to it real quick with a patient, you know, who's in need, they've got it available. Um, you know, this was this paper was uh, part of a series of papers that I did uh, with a VA colleague, Zach Coupler. Um, and and, you know, suicide prevention is something that VA providers are, are very uh, keenly aware of, and we have a lot of resources uh, at hand for this. Um, you know that that series of papers we put together was uh, essentially a call to action to our profession that we published in Chiromanual Therapies. This guide um, in in the Canadian paper or journal, and then uh, we did an educational paper where we're looking at you know what's being taught um, at you know at colleges, residencies, CE, that kind of stuff. Um, and then we also did a case series uh, that I would I would point clinicians to as well. That was uh, I think it was published in Journal of Chiromed, where we gave some examples of how you can work with a mental health provider, and then what the mental health provider might do with the patient once they actually see them. So you can give the patient an idea of what to expect before they get to that next provider. And uh, you know, so the reason you know all of this it was so important to, to Zach and I is, uh, you know, as I mentioned, it's, it's a big part of the VA culture to be aware of it, uh, but suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the U.S., and major risk factors for suicide are chronic pain, opioid use, and PTSD. And, uh, you know, we're at, at, in VA, we see a lot of patients with PTSD, but I think all chiropractors are seeing people with, with chronic pain and, and likely, uh, you know, have had prior opioid use. So, uh, you know, this is something we felt 
was very important to dive into and was another topic where we couldn't find much uh, in the chiropractic literature that, w- that was relevant. And so we wanted to try and, and put that together for ourselves and for uh, others. And, and the idea was to, to make us less anxious in addressing this um, and, and be able to help the, those people in need. So uh, with this particular project, this was a, a descriptive review. So it's not as, as methodologi- methodologically rigorous as that systematic design. Uh, but we really, you know, our goal was not to, to have a, a finite pico for an answer we were trying to uh, come up with but rather to create a digestible guide that would actually be useful um, to people in practice. And um, so in the paper, we, we you know, review some of the uh, accepted terminology um, uh, you know, around suicide uh, in, in that's you know, up to date. We also dispel uh, a lot of common myths uh, around suicide and suicide prevention. So for example, um, you know, a lot of people think that by asking patients, uh, you know, about, you know, thoughts of self-harm or thoughts of suicide, you might actually uh, somehow trigger them to attempt uh, suicide or, or to, you know, accidentally, you know, inception thoughts of suicide into them. And, and we know that that's absolutely not true. That is a myth. Um, asking patients about thoughts of, of self-harm uh, actually reduces the stigma around it and opens the door for them to reach out to you for help. And, uh, you know, chiropractors are very well positioned for this because we see, we tend to see the patients uh, fairly frequently and build really strong rapport with them, uh, maybe better than they can build with their primary uh, care provider that they see, you know, once a year or every six months kind of thing. Um, So, uh, you know, I think breaking down some of those myths is important. Um, And then, you know, for the rest of the paper, we basically categorize prevention measures that can be taken at a, you know, primary, secondary, and a a tertiary level. Um, So, you know, primary measures is looking at things like social determinants of health, and some of these things are modifiable, some are not. Um, So, you know, not modifiable might be like a family history of suicide, serving in the military, uh, being a sexual minority, things like that can be risk factors, um, but are not things that you can change. Uh, modifiable things is going to be like uh, treatment adherence, um, you know, substance abuse, uh, things like that. And then we also dive into protective factors. So, you know, having strong social supports, family connectedness, uh, you know, things like that, uh, you know, spiritual beliefs, all of those can be protective against someone uh, attempting suicide or, or, or you know, reducing uh, the chances of having thoughts of, of self-harm. Um, then from the secondary standpoint, I think this is the one that, that's probably, you know, secondary and tertiary are probably going to be most of most interest to chiropractic clinicians, which is screening people uh, who are having uh, or potentially having thoughts of self-harm uh, for the secondary. So we go through uh, a number of uh, different assessment tools that are available. Um, in our clinic at, at BA Puget Sound, the way we do it, we have you know intake paperwork the patient completes, and as part of the review of findings on there, you know they have a number of mental health questions to answer, uh, which is basically you know are they having uh, depression, anxiety, PTSD, thoughts of self harm, and if they select yes to any of that, that's sort of their first opportunity to tell us you know they want to talk about it, and so if they mark yes, then we ask about it in our our patient interview and uh you know if it's not something already being managed through mental health which you know fortunately in the va commonly they are 
Um, then we'll run a uh, Columbia, uh, Columbia Suicide Severity Rating Scale, um, which is, you know, uh, we've got a tool for it that's really easy to run in the, the uh, electronic health record system. And that's essentially a three to eight item uh, tool and depending on their answers. So, you know, if they say, you know, no to the first couple questions, the, the survey is really quick. Um, and at the end, it tells us what to do with the patient. So, you know, if they're having active uh, suicidal ideation, that's somebody that we're going to very quickly plug into the primary care mental health team um, and get them help. Uh, or, you know, we could even reach out to the, we have a veterans crisis line here locally that we, we can reach out to to plug them into. Um, if it's more passive, then maybe it's uh, just setting up a consult with a, a psychologist uh, or, or psychiatrist. Um, and then from a tertiary standpoint, this is the people who um, are having, you know, again, you know, active suicidal ideation or have previously, um, you know, attempted suicide. And so this is uh, going to be a lot of resources that I think will be really useful to the clinicians. We have uh, some really nice appendices at the, the back of the paper um, that both for the U.S. and for Canada that give, uh, you know, uh, uh, phone numbers and hotlines and online forums and all sorts of places you could direct the patient to very quickly um, and then get them some help. Yeah, yeah. The, um, I was really impressed with the appendices. I, I thought those were fantastic. Uh, so I, I think you're right. Uh, people in practice are really going to find that uh, quite useful. And so people in practice then, uh, I know that through the VA, it sounds like there's there's quite a team that's available people in practice um would you suggest maybe just uh reaching out or getting to know a psychologist or psychiatrist in your area type of thing and and uh refer to them is that what might be a good suggestion or yeah i i think that's a great uh i i think it probably more so in private practice than in integrated settings uh you need to have some resources lined up for, for when this happens and you want to have them ahead of time, not, not after the, uh, you know, patient in crisis presents, um, some, another resource I would direct at least us, uh, providers to is, uh, you can just dial nine, eight, eight. And, uh, I think you have to press number one after that. And that is, um, a suicide crisis line that was put together by SAMHSA. Um, so there, there's, you know, you can have someone on the phone right away, just the numbers nine, eight, eight. Um, and you could, you know, that's something that if I was in private practice, I would call it with the patient in the room. Um, and, and then have that guide, you know, does this person need to go to the hospital or, or, you know, some other, other involvement? Yeah, perfect. Well, I appreciate you going through that. It's really important, uh, uh, topic for sure. Uh, and, um, I, I really can't think of too many times in practice where I've, I've had, uh, suicide come up, but I want to be prepared, like you said, in case it does uh, in the future. So just having uh, having these relationships is, is really key. Uh, I would so, say, um, yeah, go ahead. Know, I mentioned briefly, you know, chronic pain and opioid use are risk factors for suicide. So I suspect it actually is happening in patients more than we think, uh, these, these thoughts and harm. That's why I would advocate people add a question in their intake paperwork at minimum um, that can be an open door for the patient because um, these, you know, these are people that are, are hurting and do need, uh, you know, support, but maybe won't even think to bring it up to a chiropractor because, you know, they think it's the back doctor um, unless some sort of uh, door is open for them. 
So yeah, perfect. Uh, now, out of the survey, you you went through some of the survey items, uh, and it sounds like kind of a le- yellow flag, uh, what some people might call a yellow flag, uh, to follow up on. Uh, and would this be a question, something like, uh, have you ever had any thoughts of self harm, something like that? Exactly. Yeah. We, I mean, we just have like a yes no checkbox, and it's like. Um, I'm, I'm trying to remember the exact wording now, but it's, you know, if you recently had thoughts of self-harm okay. and, uh, yeah. and then if they mark yes, that's when we follow up. Or if they say something offhand during the interview that, that might trigger us to run the, uh, Columbia, Columbia suicide severity scale, uh, as well. Okay. Yeah. Great advice. Uh, and you know, practical, uh, that people can start using right away. Um, let's get to our next paper. Uh, also very interesting paper. This is a systematic review of guideline recommended medications prescribed for treatment of low back pain. And this uh, came out in chiropractic and manual therapies in 2020. Uh, so I wonder if you could uh, take us through this paper. Yeah. So uh, in VA, we're very fortunate to uh, full access to patients' electronic health records. So we can see, you know, progress notes, imaging, labs, and also their medications. And uh, we found that our trainees, when they come in, often have very little knowledge or limited knowledge of medications commonly used to treat spine complaints. And, uh, you know, that becomes aware to them, you know, when they see the chart. And, and now you have full access to this where, you know, in private practice, you're kind of relying on the patient and, and how good of a historian they are. And, uh, you know, just to clarify, I was the same coming out of Cairo school. So uh, I also had limited knowledge on this topic. And uh, when our first resident started with us in 2020, uh, Morgan Price, uh, we wanted to do a project, uh, you know, some sort of uh, systematic review. And we we finally developed this project where we looked at uh, just what is actually recommended for low back pain uh, as far as medication treatment. So uh, we only looked at clinical practice guidelines from the prior five-year period. Um, so there's some some debate on uh, if clinical pra- practice guidelines are outdated after they're more than, more than three to five years. Um, so we only looked at the most recent stuff and we found uh, nine clinical practice guidelines that met our inclusion criteria, which again, they had to be about oral medication. So no injections, um, you know, no other treatments. Um, and within that, we found 10 different classes of medications that were reviewed. Um, and uh, we looked at both acute and chronic low back pain and what they recommended for both of those. We tried to do subacute, but the, the guidelines didn't include subacute or they included it with acute with no, no difference. And, uh, you know, our big winner in, in both the acute and chronic low back pain was NSAIDs. Uh, those, you know, ibuprofen, more or less, those, uh, or Motrin, that was what was recommended for both acute and chronic by the majority of uh, those nine clinical practice guidelines. Um, and then it got way murkier, murkier after that. So uh, for acute low back pain, the next most recommended guideline was skeletal muscle relaxants. However, that was mostly actively recommended against for chronic pain. And for chronic pain, the next most recommended uh, medication class was antidepressants, uh, which we, we found interesting because that's you know obviously off-label uh, use. And um, 
you know, for both of those, uh, you know, the antidepressants and the muscle relaxers, about as many guidelines recommended against or were inconclusive as recommended for it. Um, and then it just went down from there. And, and several classes of medications were actually recommended against only or, or inconclusive and, and no medications recommended like antibiotics, uh, anticonvulsants. Uh, so that's like gabapentin. And uh, there were a couple other benzodiazepines and steroids were not recommended by any of the guidelines for acute or chronic low back pain. And uh, sorry, I should have clarified for low back pain. We were looking at non-ridicular low back pains, no ridiculopathy cases uh, or guidelines were included for this project. Got it. Yeah. So for if there's any patients listening, the ridiculopathy just refers to uh, no, no pain essentially beyond uh, the back or and buttock. Uh, so none, none in the leg, basically, as what we're talking about there. And so with the the types of medications that are included in this paper, and finding that you know non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs were uh, the the most frequently recommended. Many of those tend to be um, non-prescription over you know, available over the counter. Uh, and so this is, this, I've always had an interesting, uh, I mean, I, I think about this um, a decent amount, uh, especially, you know, patients will ask us, well, what, uh, what do you think I should be taking? You know, what kind of medication? And, and uh, I'm sort of the same way as you, when you first got out in practice, you know, I, I guess I think to myself, well, it's not really in my, um, my scope of practice per se to recommend medicines, although they're over the counter. Uh, so I, I do find myself uh, shying away from some of these discussions, at least in any kind of significant detail. But at the, the same time, it is important to know what people are taking, right? Because there was a paper fairly recently that suggested that a, a good number of patients are coming to us because of the side effects of some of these medications. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we have to be knowledgeable uh, about the medication. So just wondering, you know, what, what your thought is like, how, how detailed would we, or should we be getting with this and, and how might your approach be to, to a patient, let's say at the VA uh, or, or just in, you know, private practice? Yeah, I think, uh, again, I think we're on the same wavelength, Dean. I, um, you know, in the paper, we, we comment on a couple surveys where uh, a lot of, uh, or not a lot, uh, a number of, of non-prescribing providers, chiropractors, said that they do give advice on over-the-counter medications. And we were a little bit surprised by that. Um, and, we, you know, that's something that we generally try and stay away from as well. And generally will, uh, you know, instead direct the patient to the prescribing provider or to uh, their primary care. Um, we will, you know, discuss, you know, just what the guidelines say with the patient, but we don't, you know, discuss dosage or, or things like that. Um, in the paper, we also, you know, in addition to just saying what was recommended or not, we also provided, um, you know, common potential harms from the medication. So uh, the idea was that this might help clinicians to recognize, uh, you know, some of these side effects or what could be side effects. Um, to where maybe you could just counsel the patient on on potential side effects as uh, that way they recognize it if if they start to have them. Uh, but generally, we try and you know direct them to the prescribing provider. Yeah, I I 
I like that. Uh, I'm glad we're on the same wavelength. I, you know, sometimes you're out in practice and you think, uh, I wonder what other chiropractors are doing, <laughs> you know? So it's, it's always very helpful to have these, uh, these kinds of conversations. And I'm just going to reiterate something that was in your discussion, uh, or in your conclusion rather, uh, because I think this just summarizes it very well, uh, and just want to make this key message again. So, uh, in the conclusion, it says to manage acute and chronic low back pain, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs are recommended as first-line medicine or medication, whereas no clinical practice guidelines recommend antibiotics, anticonvulsants, benzodiazepines, or oral corticosteroids. Little agreement amongst practice guidelines and recommendations for antidepressants, acetaminophen, opioids, including tramadol, and skeletal muscle relaxers. Um, I do find that interesting because I have to say, at least around my area, the common strategy that I see, you know, people coming acutely, especially for coming from their uh, physician would be um, pain relieving medication as well as muscle relaxers. So uh, I don't know how common that is. Maybe that's just a regional thing, but uh, yeah. And you'd mentioned you know, off-label usage. I, I'm, it just seems like there's a lot of variability uh, with medication prescribing. I'm sure like there is within our own profession of, you know, uh, different chiropractors using hands-on uh, instrument adjusting and all sorts of things. But uh, it's just, it's interesting and uh, valuable for us to know. Yeah. I, uh, something that struck us uh, as well with doing this review is uh, I think a lot of the discrepancy between the recommendations is uh, because the evidence itself is pretty thin uh, for medication management of, of back pain. Um, for example, acetaminophen uh, was recommended by a couple of the guidelines. And you know, most of the guidelines all cited one RCT. And that RCT found that acetaminophen, was no, which is Tylenol, was no better than placebo for pain, function, you know, basically any of their primary uh, you know, outcomes they were looking at. And they were also using it at a, like the maximum dose you can use in a day, which is, uh, I forget it now if it's 3000 or 4000 milligrams, which is quite a, a big dose. Um, and it still was, uh, you know, essentially no better than placebo. Um, but I think a lot of these guidelines still consider it because it's uh, very inexpensive. It's very available uh, to the patient. And it's considered to be relatively low harm, uh, even at that high dose. There, you know, there's some uh, liver risk, but it's, uh, you know, it's not thought to be like a major source of, of adverse events. So, uh, you know, some of the guidelines chose to go ahead and recommend it, where others said, you know, it's inconclusive or, or recommended against because there was no evidence uh, to support. So there's sort of different uh, takes some of the guidelines t uh, uh, or different approaches some of them take to making their recommendations. Yeah, very good. I, I appreciate uh, I appreciate that clarification. Well, let's go on to our our last paper for today, and this is the role of chiropractic care in providing health promotion and clinical preventive services for adult patients with musculoskeletal pain, a clinical practice guideline. And uh, this was published in Journal of Alternative and Complementary Medicine in two thousand and twenty one. Uh, a very important uh, paper uh, like all of these are and uh, one that I I personally love uh, talking about anything has to do with health promotion and and uh, performance and 
whatnot. So I know chiropractors will be quite interested and there's a lot to talk about in this paper, to be honest. I mean, there's no way we're going to be able to get through it all, but uh, I, I wonder if you could maybe hit some of the highlights, uh, some of the things that, you know, high level things that maybe chiropractors should be thinking about in their practice. Um, so yeah, if you could just, uh, get us started on this and we'll see where, where it leads to Clint. Yeah, I, you're right on with, uh, you know, this was a huge paper, uh, you know, covers a lot of different topics. I, you know, we could probably do one or two hours just on this paper alone. Um, this was uh, a really tremendous document that was completed by, by clinical compass, which, you know, full disclosure, I'm a, a board member for, and was masterminded by Cheryl Hawk, who has, uh, you know, a long career of working with health promotion, you know, disease prevention, wellness, uh, you know, kind of aspects of healthcare. And, you know, similar to the, the medication review and, and the suicide prevention uh, guide, we wanted this to be a resource that clinicians could use. And there, you know, there are a number of appendices for this paper as well, and uh, an online clinical guide uh, on the Compass website too. And, you know, so what we did for this project was uh, we worked with a health science librarian and ran a two-stage uh, systematic review. Uh, so in the first stage, we looked at for just clinical practice guidelines on, you know, the topics of health promotion, disease prevention, diet, physical activity, uh, obesity management, tobacco cessation, uh, immune response to manual therapy, lifestyle factors, you know, lots, lots of different uh, you know, health promotion topics. And then for topics where there was no specific clinical practice guideline, we then looked for systematic reviews um, on the topic. And then we rated uh, the evidence and uh, used the evidence from the high quality uh, rated CPGs and systematic reviews to develop uh, what's called seed statements. So these are basically seed recommendations um, that we uh, that are all based on the evidence. And then once those are, are ready, they are sent to a modified Delphi panel, which is a large panel of experts in our profession. And they uh, rate each of the statements with, you know, Likert scale and then add comments and recommended revisions or tell us, you know, where they think we missed something or, or we overstated or, or whatever. And uh, for a statement to be included in the final document, it has to meet 80% agreement uh, across all those experts. And, you know, so that's sort of the, the genesis of the project. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah. And, yeah, go ahead. Well, no, I was just going to say, uh, uh, for, for those of you who are, you know, interested in taking uh, maybe some first steps into research, uh, you had just mentioned the, the Delphi panel, and this particular paper had 65 people on the panel. I mean, um, Chiropractors in practice, I'm sure some academics, I remember looking at it and, and recognizing a bunch of the names of, uh, of the individuals who were on this panel, uh, who were recognized. And uh, so it might be a, a good way for a chiropractor in practice just to start to get their feet wet, so to speak, uh, being a part of a panel. Um, uh, so, sorry, I didn't want to detract from oh, what yeah. you were saying there. I just, uh, that, that's what came to mind. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, uh, you know, it's a great way to learn and contribute without, uh, you know, being the one with the name on the byline at the, the top who's responsible uh, at the highest level for the work. Um, it, it's, uh, you know, something we're always trying to find good, good, you know, people and experts to, to contribute to those things. Um, I think that, you know, sort of the main uh, takeaways from this paper is I, I would want mostly just 
uh, you know, practicing chiropractors to be aware of the paper. And this is another one I would recommend, you know, having printed off in the office or, or digitally uh, where you can reference it when you need it for a given patient. You know, it's very unrealistic that everything we cover in this paper is going to be addressed for every patient. Uh, you know, we don't have five hour visits to do all that. Um, but, you know, there are very practical tips and recommendations in there uh, that could be used for a given patient. So, you know, if you have a patient trying to quit smoking, you could direct them to, uh, you know, a tobacco cessation, you know, phone line, which is in the U.S. is 800 quit now, or, you know, direct them to, you know, reputable uh, resources like CDC if there's a disease outbreak or, uh, you know, counsel them on uh, chronic pain, uh, chronic musculoskeletal pain and, and, that cure is not the model we're working with, uh, but instead we should be focused on function. And, uh, you know, as chiropractors, I would recommend we use our, our passive skills, our manipulation or, or manual therapy as a tool to uh, push them into active care and self-management. Um, and so there's, a, you know, there's a lot of different things that could be applied to the right patient. Yeah, I, I think we're 100% on the same page uh, in terms of, you know, using our, our hands-on skills to, to get people into a position that they're better able to take care of themselves, that they move better, hopefully, with less pain, and then they're more capable of doing all these other preventive um, actions. You know, when you feel better, you tend to eat better. You know, you feel like you can move your body more and get some exercise. So, uh, it's, it's really critical stuff. Uh, and so... Uh, I'm glad that uh, you went over that in, in a high level. What you mentioned smoking cessation. Um, what what are just a couple of other uh, you know of the bigger topics that that the people could find in this review? Yeah, um, there, there's discussion on um, just when screening should be done. I think is something that's that's quite useful. So okay, uh, we rely a lot on the U.S. Preventative Task Force, and they they give really nice. Re that's another resource I would highly recommend uh, field clinicians become familiar with. Uh, but it gives you know exactly when different screenings should occur, and you know maybe the Cairo isn't the one that does them, but maybe you can promote them seeing their primary care at you know a certain age limit, or you know if they are certain BMI, there's different recommendations. Um, there's also, you know, dietary recommendations. There's there's physical activity recommendations. Um, I think we discussed suicide prevention very briefly. Um, there's there's you know a lot of uh, you know a lot of different uh, things discussed in the paper. Yeah, no doubt. And since it's uh, through the Clinical Compass, I think this is also free full text. Is is that right? It is. Yep. Okay. And, uh, yeah, at the time we published, it was Journal of Alternative Complementary Medicine. It's now Journal of Integrated or Integrative. I can't remember Complementary Medicine. Oh, okay. So if you know if people are looking for it and can't find it, that might be why they, they changed the name of the journal. Got it. Uh, and published. and I believe uh, last time I was on Clinical Compass, I think all of the guidelines are available on the Clinical Compass guideline or Clinical Compass website as well. Yeah, our goal is for those to always be open access. Uh, you know, so you don't have to be at a VA or an academic institution to read them. Great. Yeah. So you can, so if you're out there and you're looking to find this paper, you'll just, you know, type it in and, uh, you'll find it and, uh, I'll make the link, uh, to PubMed at least available on the chiropractic science website so that you can find uh, a link to all of the papers that we talked about today. So, Dr. Daniels, this is a great discussion. Uh, lots of uh, really, you know, practical points uh, 
that we're talking about today. And I, I want to uh, ask my last question. Uh, well, it might be my last. <laughs> we'll find <laughs> out. But um, uh, usually I wrap up with uh, chiropractors and researchers telling us about, you know, how how they might uh, help practitioners and students uh, pursue research careers in this field. And I wonder if you could offer any advice to these aspiring chiropractors or students who, who wish to become scientists. Yeah, yeah, happy to. And uh, I don't know if I mentioned it before, but I wanted to clarify, I am not a trained researcher. So I don't have a you know master's in research or PhD, um, but I'm, a, you know, I like the term clinician scientist. Uh, you know, I think it sounds, sounds fancy and makes me feel important. And uh, uh, so, I, you know, speaking first to, you know, budding clinician scientist, I would say just keep it simple. Uh, don't, you know, feel, you know, I think a lot of feel pressure to create, you know, really elaborate designs or, or RCTs or things like that. Uh, but I would focus on, uh, you know, sort of what's already in the scope of your expertise and, uh, you know, push them to realize that developing research skills is a process, particularly for clinicians, because we are not in, you know, a scaffolded, uh, designed research program where we're learning all the steps. So it's it's going to take time. Um, and I, I'm a huge advocate of, of case reports as a first project for clinicians. They're very accessible. You already have the patients to, to you know, potentially write them on. And there, there's great guidelines available. There's the care guidelines uh, that, that give you step-by-step -step everything that should be in a high-quality report. Uh, there's also a really great paper by uh, Claire Johnson and Bart Green on, on how to write a good case report. So I usually push, you know, VA providers that reach out to me to do that first. And uh, I think it's a good eye opener to how much work research is as well. Uh, is even, you know, case reports that, that people think tend to think, you know, uh, are low level evidence, uh, to do it well is still a tremendous amount of work. Um, so I think it's a great litmus test to see, you know, is this a passive interest or is this something you actually want to dive into? Um, for students, uh, they have more pathways available than than we've ever had as a profession. Um, you know, of course, you know, one option is more more grad school, master's, PhD kind of thing. Um, or uh, we also have wonderful postgraduate fellowship programs that are opening up all over the country um, that are either open to chiropractors or specifically for chiropractors. So, uh, you know, there's a program at University of Washington near me in Seattle, uh, Yale, Harvard, Dartmouth has got a new program, Duke's got a new program. There's also VA advanced uh, fellowships, which are, are very research focused in, in different specialties. And I think if I had to do everything, if I was graduating now and had to do everything over again, I would pursue or recommend pursuing the VA uh, chiropractic clinical residency first to become, you know, as good a clinician as I could in, in a short amount of time. And then, uh, then I would consider pursuing one of those other postdoctoral fellowships and then just see where it, where it took me from there. Um, and then, you know, my last just general advice for, for anyone looking at research is you have to have fun with it. Um, and if you, you know, don't enjoy or aren't connecting with the project you're working on, it's going to be grueling uh, to see it through uh, to the end and, and complete that project. And actually, Dean, that's a great uh, segue for something here. Uh, would you indulge me a minute for a couple very quick jokes? Sure. <laughs> All right. So I'm just intrigued now. This is yeah. great. <laughs> All right. So first one here, what kind of dogs love car racing? What kind of dogs love car racing? I don't know, Clint. What kind of Slap dogs? Lap dogs. 
Uh, Yeah, sorry, this is a lame joke. Number two, cosmetic surgery used to be such a taboo subject. Now you can talk about Botox and nobody raises an eyebrow. And uh, number three, (laughs) another one, you might know this one, Dean. Uh, Where do spiders seek health advice? I have not heard this. It's uh, WebMD. Oh. uh, (laughs) Yes. So, Dean, those jokes are admittedly terrible. Uh, but like any good researcher, I'm going to cite my source. So those jokes are courtesy of my good friend, Jordan Gleet. And I know Jordan's going to listen to this. And so Jordan, uh, I just want to tell you, I've accepted your challenge. And now I want to publicly challenge you to come on Dean's podcast and discuss your work. Uh, <laughs> Dean, I love thank it. you so much for indulging me. Uh, I love it. That. I love that. Yeah. Well, you know, I, and I wanted to get back to the idea of the... Um, you know, what the advice, uh, you had mentioned again, I think it's so important. You just have to, I mean, when you're starting, you have to reach out, you know, you need some kind of resources. So you reached out to Cheryl Hawk, for example, uh, Dr. Enix and various others. And that's such a critical step. Uh, it's a simple step, but it's probably the most critical. And I think that people will find, uh, for example, you and I, uh, you know, uh, I'm sure I'll speak for myself, but I know uh, probably for you too that you are, I'm sure, very welcoming. Uh, if people have questions out in the field or whatnot, you know, we try to answer and and help uh, help people. You know, get to the right place. You know, if they have an interest in a certain topic area, maybe start seeing if there's any chiropractic research done on it. Find out who the researchers are and contact them. I mean, it's. Uh, uh, it's, it's somewhat simple. I don't want to make it too simple, but, uh, I, I would say that most, most of us are, are pretty easy, uh, to, uh, to correspond with. And, and hopefully that can, can be a segue into uh, getting into case studies or, or even higher level designs if that's what you want to do. But, uh, uh, I tell you what, this has been a great, uh, great discussion, Clint. Uh, any, any last thoughts? Or, yeah, or jokes? I, uh, yeah, no more jokes. Uh, <laughs> those were not worthy of more. Um, I, I think what you, what you just said was wonderful advice. You know, reach out, uh, you know, me or, or other researchers. I, I think it's uh, chiropractic research is a fairly small community. And it, from what I've seen, it's been very welcoming um, to people who want to participate. Um, I think research, you know, a source where you can connect with the researchers directly is ResearchGate. You know, a lot of people are on there. Um, it's an easy way, you know, for, for chiropractors who maybe don't have uh, institutional access, you can contact researchers there and ask them for, you know, copy of their paper directly. And a lot of times they can share that uh, with you. So that's, a, a you know, one other little little plug. And then lastly, um, something that I think is, is underappreciated is having a peer group who's similar. So, you know, I have great, I've had, you know, really fortunate you know, strong mentors to work with. Um, but I've also had really wonderful peer support of people at a similar stage, people that I can ask my dumb questions to, where maybe I don't want to embarrass myself to my, you know, my mentor. Uh, so I'm like, you know, see where you can bounce things off a little more easily and, and, and see if they're experiencing the same thing. So I would, I would strongly recommend finding, uh, peers to re- work on projects with. Great. Well, Dr. Daniels, thanks again for coming on the podcast. It's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Dean. Well, that was a really fun interview with Dr. Clinton Daniels. I look forward to bringing you more great interviews in upcoming episodes. Stay tuned.